poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness. Now, nestled in the foothills of a mountain range, Greatness Village is the promised land the Chasing Poker Greatness community calls home. Here, you'll find elite teachers, aspiring pros, and primitive tribal warriors who grew tired of their old ways and found a better path. These are the stories of Greatness Village on Chasing Poker Greatness. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today, in this villager-centric episode, I'm joined by Ian Parchin, who's a campus law enforcement officer. He's been playing poker his whole life, but only taking it seriously during the beginning of the pandemic. Ian, welcome to the show, sir. How are you doing? Good, Brad. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. And things have come real full circle because I found your podcast about a year ago and then joined the village and never thought I'd actually be on it. So it's my pleasure, man. It's been great getting to know you over the past year as well and seeing your progress and seeing you rank up and become a winning player. It's it's very valuable to me and it means a lot when my guys find success right i think that's that's why y'all pay me monies to find success and so <laughs> it feels good when you when you don't just flame out and crash and you know burn alive <laughs> well you should give yourself more credit because i don't think anybody that really gives themselves fully to the process everyone's bound to come out successful on the other end so it, well, what you offer is just your gold. So I appreciate that. And let's start out by going all the way back to early years, Parchin, um, and tell the listener how you uh, how you began your journey into the world of poker. Uh, playing cards uh, has always been a thing that my family has done since I can remember. I remember in kindergarten going to my kindergarten teachers saying, do you know how to play poker? And she didn't. And I didn't understand how <laughs> someone didn't know how to play poker. And uh, I just used to play five card draw at that time with my dad. And it was just pure fun. How old were you, or How old are you now? Let's set the timeline. So I just turned 38 last week. So I uh, experienced the moneymaker boom. I was about, I don't know, 19-ish, 20 when that went down. And yeah, you're really old, actually, Parchin. You're four months older than me. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. um, so our, our journeys line up probably a lot with the moneymaker boom and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, why did poker, why was this so fascinating for you at an age of five and six? Why was it fun? It was just something that our family did was play cards of all types. Um, and poker, in my mind at that time, was the most basic card game, even more basic than war, I guess, just because that's how often we played it. And getting together with my grandparents weekly and playing Pinochle and Tripoli and 
other stuff. It just, you know, games was always kind of embedded into our family. Um, and I just fond memories around the game and cards in general, all types of cards. So did you, when you were around in the moneymaker boom, did you play then? I mean, what, what did your like competitive environment look like all the way through the rest of elementary school, middle school, high school? Sure. Um, so I kind of got a jump start before moneymaker happened, kind of like, I guess when I was a junior, I believe, in high school, and uh, I was in my friend's basement, and we were playing poker. We weren't playing Hold'em because it wasn't really a mainstream thing for us. We're, I think we're playing five-card draw, actually. And I was like, you know, I've never actually put anything substantial on the line. Do you want to play for uh, refing checks? We were both basketball refs at the time, and we got overpaid for what we did. We got 50 bucks a game, and we could do three games in an hour and a half, and in high school, that's really good money. And uh, we didn't really know what we were really risking when we said, hey, uh, let's, let's gamble the weekend checks, you know, winner take all. And, you know, did a best out of five heads up, five card draw. And I won and it was awesome. And he was pissed, but <laughs> what? <laughs> and then, did you collect? Uh, yeah, he, he's still my good friend today. He's honest and he paid from then. And we still yeah. play heads up a lot. Uh, from there, we, you know, talked during school and we're like, we should do something on a bigger scale. And at the time, my dad was going out of town to Atlanta for some training, your neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, and we planned a poker party. Uh, we had about 25 people show up at the house and I really didn't know what I was doing. And none of them really knew what they were doing. And we said we we're playing one, two which was really high for high school <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, found out that most of the people that showed up didn't want to play that high. So we had, you know, other tables break off because we obviously had 25 people. And a funny story from that night is the second table really didn't know anything about poker to the point where you make a bet, somebody calls, they didn't realize the original better couldn't reopen the action. And they just kept reopening the action every time <laughs> they wanted. Yeah. Uh, it was just, it was great fun. And then from there, we just kind of had a weekly game at another friend's house that had a better setup and we did it all through high school. And that was about a year before like the world poker tour kicked off. And before, I mean, moneymaker didn't win his thing until after I was already out of high school. And mm-hmm. that's when you know, everyone kind of gravitated to hold them. And, you know, I still had some of those friends from high school we played with. And that's kind of cr- that's kind of crazy. You got 25 people for a home game, but pre moneymaker boom. So yeah. people still wanted to play poker. Exactly. Yeah. And I remember uh, this one guy, he did kind of a hit and run. He ripped $50 off of me and got out of there and said, I paid for my uh, prom ticket. And he never made it back to another <laughs> poker game. <laughs> so, uh, good times. That was, be- that was before I even know what the hit- term hit and run meant. So. Yeah. You got disinvited automatically. Yeah. Um, but I, I hope you had a nice prom that you paid for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so moneymaker boom happens. Poker becomes much more popular, much more mainstream. Tell me about your journey playing cards after moneymaker. Um, well, I wasn't 21. So the casino environment wasn't really a thing yet. Uh, we, everyone gravitated online. Uh, I went on 
a site that doesn't exist anymore called Bugsy's Club was the money site. And it was like, uh, I played for free as much as I could. And then I got a small bankroll for free. That was like $10 and tried to do something with that and ran it up to like 50, lost it. And then got my dad's credit card and got a little more money on. And then, uh, you know, kind of off and on like that. Uh, my friend that got me on that site from the same broker circle, he took $50 and ran it up to 500 in two days. I was like, wow, there could be money to be had here. So it was definitely from there I was hooked. And all through college, I'd play here and there on weekends. Nothing serious. I've been a rec player pretty much all up until recently. Um, you know, I never really super studied the game back then. Uh, you know, there was poker books. I read Super System and uh, Phil Helmuth's play like the pros, which was in hindsight, kind of a funny book, but <laughs> yeah. So did your dad continue playing cards? Like, did your dad have an interest in poker as well? I noticed that you, you said your dad was going out of town a lot. So I assume this is one of those like poker party situations where parents are out of town and let's go nuts in the house. Uh, he actually knew that I was playing cards. I told him what was going on. It was just a good opportunity where he wouldn't have to deal with the noise yeah. Um, my dad, he, he worked for a company where he had to go to a lot of software trainings and stuff in Atlanta. He had to go there a few times for it. Um, but actually most of the games were at other friends' houses. It just happened to be that I was the one that started at our house. We had like maybe two or three parties after that, but weekly it was at other friends' houses for the most part. Uh, my dad's, uh, history of playing cards. I've never seen him play for money. We played for free around the kitchen table, like I said, kindergarten, first grade. Um, but I've never seen him actually gamble. So I got that bug from my other side of the family, I think. But uh, yeah. Nice. I, uh, I remember playing against my dad, my grandparents, my uncles, um, cards growing up, seven card stud, five card draw. Always, always wanted to play for money, even though I had very little money. As like a nine-year-old, I did want the money element involved. And I think life back then, just for the record, since we're the same age, was a little different <laughs> than it is than life is today. We had very few things to stimulate us and right. keep us entertained. And cards was like, I think one of those things that we just did with like the grandparents and stuff. We just play cards and like play rummy and whatever else to sort of entertain ourselves because we didn't have YouTube or any sort of like high tech video game system. Yeah. And that, I mean, that was my grandparents' generation. That was kind of their social network as they would go out, they were in bridge clubs, they were in pinochle clubs. And, and I just remember my grandmother's eyes light up when she was teaching me how to play pinochle for the first time. And it was, they're teaching me strategy behind it, how you bid on certain things a certain way to indicate to your partner you have certain stuff here. And, mm -hmm. you know, just I know you played spades a lot. I'm sure it's kind of similar in the strategy aspect, um, different rules, obviously, but, you know, and just taking that over to cards. And, you know, it, the social aspect's huge for me because I'm not, I'm kind of like you as I'm an introvert. So, like, if I can go play cards and I can go talk to people, it's like, that's the way I'm going to get out and mingle. I'm not going to go, you know, I'm not a concert person. I'm not a bar person. I'm not a club person. I'm a card enthusiast that likes to enjoy my hobby with others. So. Yeah. 
And um, I remember specifically my grandparents, they would have friends over three, four nights a week just to play rummy, like just like clockwork, um, dinner and then play cards afterwards. And yeah, so cards has always been a big part of my life. And for you, um, what, what career did you pursue after high school? And then from there, where was cards? Like, has it always just kind of been in the periphery? Did you put it down and come back to it? So I did this traditional thing. Like when I graduated high school, I had my mindset as I wanted to be a police officer. So I went to school, got a criminal justice degree and went the traditional path. Um, Why did you want to be a police officer? Uh, I, I like the idea of helping others, but at the same time, not having to take shit while I was doing my job. Um, you know, retail, you got to kind of eat a lot of crow um, and law enforcement. You can actually kind of try to keep the peace, but yet be stern in doing so. And it just it, it fit my personality more than mm -hmm. any other career path other than maybe poker. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of aspects of law enforcement and poker that do line up. Um, one of them not trusting other people <laughs> yeah. and try to see through things and see the truth in things um, and kind of problem solving and, you know, solving crimes and figuring out what the motives are between certain actions. A lot of things line up. Um, I think that fits both well. Um, so, yeah, I went the traditional path. I went, got a four-year degree. I ended up working at the college that I graduated from. Um, as a campus police officer, took advantage of tuition stuff, got an advanced degree and kind of, I've been moving up in that field um, since, but gambling's always been, I say gambling and poker different. So gambling is my vice. Like if I have one guilty pleasure, it's gambling. And poker fits that in that I can make mini bets, but I have um, dabbled in all areas of gambling. I'll say that sports, gaming, pits, um, horse betting, stuff like that. How's the other stuff worked out for you, Parchin? Uh, well, <laughs> I'm not a professional at it. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, you know, it is, I mean, it is what it is now. It's a source of entertainment and I don't do it a lot now. Poker, I do a lot. Um, and it kind of, you know, it channels my vices in a way where it can be profitable and I'm still balanced, I guess. Um, but I do have my moments where, you know, we have UFC parties and I'll bet on the entire card or, you know. Ooh, I want to bet on UFC cards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I yeah. think that like, that that's a good thing about poker is you can still scratch the itch of gambling and playing something for money. And if you're good at it, then you also can have an edge or you can, you know, by training and learn your way to break even with a hobby. And, you know, there are very few hobbies that you break even doing like absolutely golf is not a break even hobby <laughs> for anybody mm -hmm. listening golf. You probably lose lots of money, um, just in buying clubs and going to the range and paying for all the stuff. So anyway, that's, that's a good part of poker. And the downside is that, you know, you can lose a lot of money too. If you don't take it seriously and you don't learn and you don't grow, then yeah, the poker can very easily become a money pit in and of itself as a, as a hobby. 
Right. And it's all about how you approach poker. And I'm learning that more recently than before where I was approaching poker is just another one of the betting games. Now it's more of a, let me hone these skills and make it that long-term uh, hobby like you just talked about and, and actually turn the corner and possibly make it profitable and get even more enjoyment out of it. Yes. So from you know the time where you're investing yourself in your career and kind of messing around, you know, Black Friday happens. And then, you know, we're 10 years removed from Black Friday these days, which is kind of crazy how time has gone by. Um, did you mess around with poker? And then I guess let's segue into when you decided to start taking it more seriously. Or so I, between all that time going on up to Black Friday, I was a very much recreational player. Um, you know, I'd have a week off, I'd load up 500 bucks on my PokerStars account, probably go bust before the end of the week and, you know, do it again a couple months later. Uh, so I, you know, Black Friday happened. It didn't financially affect me because I had always little balance. And if I ever got anything over $1,000 on my account, I was taking it off um, probably just to put it on a couple weeks later. But I never left substantial money on there. Uh, but I was going to Atlantic city a lot. Uh, my wife and I were dating at the time and because I was playing the pit game. So often I was getting multiple free rooms at all the Atlantic city hotels. So at the time, casinos weren't close to me. It was Atlantic city was about three hours from my college. So we would go, you know, four days a month. Um, and I'd play cards in the live setting, uh, I like the live setting more because back in those times, getting money off of online poker was a little more difficult. Uh, back when NetTeller was still around or waiting for the, the Caribbean check to come from Singapore and then explain to the teller what, what you're trying to cash, the appeal of live was better to me that I could just go to the cage and go home. Yes, um, yes. I felt like a criminal so many times going, taking those checks to the bank, like just uh, dreading it, a pit in my stomach. Like, Oh my God, I got another check from Singapore. There's <laughs> something about Bitcoin that just relieves all that. And the tellers always like, who are these people? Where is this from? Like, what's the, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm just, I'm a business consultant. Don't worry about it. We're going to need your ID. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, Again, and I hate feeling like I'm doing something wrong too. And man, I felt like I was doing something wrong every single time. That was one of the major appeals of like going to home games too after Black Friday was like, I just get paid in cash and I don't have to answer any questions. And this is just so much simpler. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And then from Atlantic City trips has always been a thing, you know, or up until recently where casinos start opening closer and I didn't have to drive to Atlantic city and Atlantic city is kind of a dead town now, but yeah, the poker's always been there. And like I said, as a wreck thing, uh, post, uh, black Friday, I got married. Uh, we relocated to Maryland because of circumstances. Uh, my wife was taking a promotion. I was recently reorged out of a job. Uh, so we moved right next to a casino. I was like, maybe I can give a run at this poker thing. Still not really 
mentally preparing myself what that would look like and what variance actually means. Um, and I had a kid on the way and decided maybe I can't do this after I had my first couple buy-in down day. And I was like, this is not an optimal situation with the kid on the way. Uh, so I ended up getting a job at that casino because I was like, well, I can still stay close to the vest and, you know, watch all the casino games at the same time and kind of get my itch without actually risking anything. But then I boxed myself out of playing at that casino until <laughs> other ones opened. And then I got back into the campus law enforcement thing. And, um, yeah. So then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, I kind of went down a YouTube wormhole of watching all these streamers playing the WSOP online because it was all moved online after COVID was kicking off. And that gave me the itch to play online again. Uh, you know, I downloaded ACR because I thought that's what everybody was doing. Uh, I got lucky and banked the tournament, uh, turned 30 bucks into three grand. And then I was like, all right, let's go make a run at this cash game thing. Uh, that's how I kind of started this new relove and journey and studying just kind of fell into place because it's, there's so much more information out there now. And it just, it failed at first. And then I found greatness village and kind of got put back on track. So that's pre, kind of the story in a nutshell. Yeah. Pre, pre greatness village. What were you struggling with as a poker player? Like what was your major struggle? Uh, emotions, uh, playing level headed. I was taking every pot personally. I was trying to win every pot, being way too aggressive and not actually sitting back and looking at the full picture of what poker is, a mathematical equation to play the odds and make, you know, uh, positive EV moves and understanding that that means getting burned sometimes. But in the long run, it pays and actually having that outside perspective or bigger picture perspective of what's happening and not trying to win every pot. I was the guy that needed to win every pot. And you talk about um, sunk money theory. When you put more money in the pot, you just you want it more and you just keep throwing good money after bad. That that was me. You know, three, four bet pots, I was going all in regarding them, regardless of my holdings. It yeah. just was not profitable. The poor, the poor sunk cost fallacy. We yeah. humans that, fall into it hook, line, and sinker, especially if they are unfamiliar with poker strategy. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do. One man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads and rip that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash nuffle. Rated R. 100 NL player, former Sergeant Elijah Shears. Before I got Nuffle, I had run into a lot of dock bets. And I think once you play a certain amount of hands, you know there's something wrong with our opponent's strategies, but you don't know how to play to maximize CP against it. And it's very frustrating. I looked at the document and I couldn't believe that I paid money for it. I actually 
doubted that it could provide value because it was so brief. But since then, it's repaid me just over and over and over again. And it's one of the most consistent money makers built into my strategy that sheds light on just how bad your opponents are. And it took me 20 minutes to perfect it. And it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. It's just that good. The simplicity of it is part of it being a masterpiece. <laughs> Nuffle. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash courses. So how did you find Greatness Village? Um, I was first on poker coaching, or I'm still on poker coaching, and I was going through material on there, just kind of doing self-studies and homeworks and watching webinars and playing explains and everything that they offer on there. And they didn't have a lot of stuff for cash games. And I remember when Jonathan Little announced that they were adding a cash game specialist, but weren't releasing who it was for a minute. And then I watched live your introduction night to poker coaching. And I was like, and then you talked about how you have a podcast. And so I started checking out your podcast and technical Tuesdays. And I was like, tactical, man, tactical, tactical Tuesdays. Tactical. Tuesdays are for, they're very tactical days. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to ruin your brain. I apologize. <laughs> um, I'll apologize to John too. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just you gave a perspective of cash games that I needed. And I like how you break down things to a, where anybody can understand them. You can talk to high level professionals at their level, or you can talk to novice like myself and bring us up and. I just could tell from your podcast that you were able to convey and teach it in a way that I would, was going to be able to understand. Um, so I was hesitant for a minute. You know, I was listening to the podcast for a couple months, still going through the poker coaching stuff and, um, you know, hit a bad run on ACR cash games. Like I'm sure a lot of people do. And I was like, you know what? I, I gave back. The $3,000 I had won off that tournament. I was like, you know, if I'm going to do this and get real enjoyment out of it, I'm going to make a real effort at it. And I started with your boot camp and, you know, eventually uh, invested in private coaching and all your courses. And it's been nothing but great. I appreciate that. And what are you struggling with now? Like as a poker player, I know that. So first of all, we'll talk about, you know, where you were at pre greatness village um, I believe you didn't have a winning graph at that point, right? Uh, no, it's pretty much straight down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's the opposite of winning. Is straight down is the opposite. Yeah. It, it was it was a nosedive, um, you know. And I do the deflection thing. It's the ACR bots, and it's just you know I'm getting cheated, and you know I did that for a minute, and then I was like, you know, I gotta. If I'm going to lo lose this much money, I might as well invest it in actually learning the game properly mm -hmm. um, and willing to throw that in up front for you know back end returns. And I've uh, definitely seen that. So um, as far as my journey with Greatness Village, you know, it's the normal variance. I started pretty good, um, gave it all back real quick. Uh, started doing some reflection on, you know, was it play? Was it just variance working with you? Um, looking at what was going on in my personal life at the time, saw some things start to line up. Um, and, you know, 
I now meditate before I sit down for every session and I can do a lot of self reflection where at that time I was just like, I'm good enough to play through whatever I'm dealing with outside of poker. I can, this is a way to push that to the side. And the truth was it wasn't. Um, and I just kind of floundered a little bit. Uh, you put me back on track. Um, I started some meditations and some breathing exercises and it, it has helped me in much more aspects than just poker as well. But focusing on poker, it kind of gave me a broader picture of what the goal was and what's actually happening here. And when I get bad beat to a two outer understanding that that's not the end of the world, cause it's going to happen. It's going to keep happening. It's how you re are resilient and come back from it. So. And I, I guess what's your favorite part of, you know, the coaching methodology, the courses, what do you enjoy about the courses? And then what do you enjoy about private coaching? Um, the courses is a breakdown that's a way that I've never seen anyone present before. Like you literally have given a formula that this is a winning way and it's mathematically proven. And you just have to take these lines and these spots. And it's, it's a lot to memorize. It's a lot to work on but it's motivating. It's fun to learn. It's fun to challenge. Um, and then putting it all together and reviewing it in the private coaching sessions and making sure it's being implemented the correct way. And are these deviations acceptable or, you know, how does this line up here? And, you know, it, it's, it's a gold mine. It, it's nothing else is out there. So. Well, how do you think about poker now? And like, what are you struggling with now? Circling back to that question, like where do you see room for upgrades these days? Um, I'm struggling with, uh, I guess bankroll, not bankroll management, but my confidence to move up in stakes. Um, we have talked about me right now. I'm a hundred L player talking about me making the jump to 200 L and you said you have full confidence that I can do it. And it's still coming down to dollar and cents in my mind. Um, you know, I, a bad day can mean what is a week or two of pay for my full-time job. So that mental block of, you can't think of it like dollars. It's a long-term statistical probability bets that pay off and you just can't get wrapped up in that. I'm having a struggle of letting go at a higher level. Um, it, you know, I was a 50 and L player when I started with you, I'm at hundred and L I was a 50 and L losing player. When I started with you, I'm at hundred and L winning player now. And, uh, going to make the jump to 200 it's just that first step is a struggle for me right now yeah what, what's your win rate at 100 and l now these days um i'm at nine bbs what's the sample uh forty thousand. hey boy that's what i'm yeah. talking about i know it, it's it's easy for me to see the growth on a weekly basis because you're um, you're actually <laughs> one of the people who were like, Brad, I, what if I buy like more than four at a time? Like, what if I just buy like a bulk 12? Like, do you have any bulk discounts? And I was like, I don't know. Do I like, I have to like, think about this. Right. <laughs> um, and we've done coaching sessions like every single week, pretty much for the past, probably three or four months. And to see 
your growth, like on a week to week basis is really cool for me. I mean, you know, you could probably go back and look back at that first coaching ses- session that we did. I think I, I probably gave you that homework at some point, right? The, uh, 100 VPIP homework. No. Okay. So I, I've given it to other people, but like basically at some point go back and watch the first video that you submitted to me and okay. listen to your thought processes. And because that's like a baseline, you can tell how far you've grown since that day, which is mm-hmm. a good indicator of like the progress that you're making. Right. Um, and I think that as it relates to the fear of doubling the stakes and playing 200 and L, I think that's pretty natural. Um, and realistically, since you have like a pretty nice situation where you've got a career and all of that, so you don't need to like actively take money out of your bankroll. You can mm-hmm. build your bankroll up to a point to where playing 200 is, uh, you know, just kind of a breeze. Like you, you recognize that like the risk of ruin is close to zero. Um, you have an established win rate and then it's just getting into the water and uh, learning, growing, learn. Eventually you get used to the swings too. Like you just, yeah. you get acclimated in the same way that you got used to hundred and L after losing at 50 and L. Yeah. And I, I understand that mentally and it's just a matter of taking that leap and, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only one way to do it. Um, yeah. What is your process for regularly improving your game look like these days as a poker player? Uh, I'm constantly reviewing my hands that have marked. I'm constantly reviewing material that you've provided. Um, I'm watching play and explains when I'm on the treadmill. Um, you know, it's, I've kind of centered my life now around, I need to get everything in line so I can play cards. And it's such a motivating uh, thing that has brought so many positive aspects to other parts of my life. Like, you know, the meditation thing has brought lowered my stress and the commute to work where I'm not racing every car on the highway to get there. I'm like, you know, you want to drive like an asshole, go drive like an asshole and you can get the speeding ticket before I do. And, you know, that's, I used to go to work and be like, all right, I'm going to get there before everybody else on the road. Um, and just kind of slowing down everything has been awesome positive impact. I feel like my relationship with my wife and my kids um, has benefited from that as well, where I'm not as reactive to things. The working out makes me have more mental clarity. So I know it's positive EV on the table to do it. And then it obviously has positive effects on my health. Um, You know, so my process is really, I've really kind of changed my life around playing optimal poker, but benefiting all other aspects of my life. You know, I, I'm a family guy. I don't let poker interfere with that. I make sure that my kids are having experiences and we go on vacations as often as possible. You know, it's, it's been a good self reflection in all aspects. I've, I'm very sneaky as a coach sometimes, uh, like with the elite program, I, it's like build is like performance, but my actual goal is to get folks to live, uh, just a better life, a more fulfilling life, have more energy, be healthier, um, just have better healthy habits. And then as a consequence of that, they are able to play more volume, but like really my, secret goal is just for them to (laughs) improve their life all around that 
improves their ability to put in more volume at poker too. And, you know, the macro affects the micro. And if you're listening to this right now, don't delude yourself into thinking that like your life can be a flaming ball of trash and like you're just going to perform well at the poker table in dealing with all the macro stuff happening in the background because like you just can't. Nobody can. Um, poker is a very emotional game and get be, becoming emotionally compromised is very easy when things are perfect. And when things are not perfect, it, it is much easier. And, you know, it's been talked about many times on the show and written about and all this stuff, but get your house in order and that will really affect your poker game and upgrade your poker game while also upgrading your life. So please, you know, spend the energy to make the effort because it is ultimately worth it. So here's a question. What's the lowest impact action you've taken to improve your game? Typically, I ask the highest impact action, but I want to ask this question so that the listener can maybe figure out a thing that they should not do to improve. Lowest impact. Um, tough question, Brad. Let me think. We lowest... don't have to blast anybody either. So like, we don't have to mention names. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you get, if you invest in something and you don't fully invest your efforts into it, it's not going to be rewarding. So just because you throw money at something, it's not going to reap any benefits just because you paid for it. You have to put in the, the, the work. And when I started buying poker products, I think I was a victim of that where I was taking the information at a superficial level and not digesting it correctly. And it was not benefiting like I thought it would. I thought just by throwing money at this and that, it would benefit. Um, when, when I first bought a HUD, I really didn't know what I was doing with the HUD. So I have all these numbers in front of me and I think it means this. And, you know, I watch a tutorial on how to break down the important B pips and what it actually means. And, you know, you over crutch yourself on a HUD and then, you know, it's, it's actually taking doing the actual work and putting in the actual volume and doing the reflections on your mistakes and not just thinking that there's a one magic wand investment. So I don't know if that's really the answer you're looking for, but it's kind of how I look at it. It's an answer, you know, that's, that's all I'm looking for is, is an answer. And I think that it's a trap that a lot of folks fall into. I mean, I've fallen into it too, where it's like, I want to learn about something. I want to get better. So I just buy something and then I put it on my bookshelf or wherever it is. And then, you know, I go to sleep at night and I'm very happy with myself because I've solved that problem and it's on my bookshelf. So of course I know it now when I didn't spend any energy right. looking at the pages or trying to reflect or take action or do anything. Um, so yeah, basically growth equals pain. You got to exert energy. You have to make an effort. You can't just passively become better at poker. There's no such thing. You have to actively take action. What's the most unexpected thing that's come from your journey through cards thus far? I already hit on it, just kind of overall life improvement. But 
I think it's just the fact that I keep coming back to cards. You know, I was away from it. I come back I go away from it. I come back and now I'm solidly with it. And it's just, um, it's, it's a rejuvenating energy. Like I'm excited about poker. Like I was when I was 19 and I haven't felt that probably since I was in my early twenties. And it's like, it's that excitement for life as a whole and like excited to go to work. So if I have downtime, I get to study poker or if, you know, I get to go think about poker on the treadmill or whatever it is, it's just kind of a rejuvenating energy that poker has brought. Tell me, this is just kind of came to me while you were talking about using HUDs, but I find now that I've done built out a lot of my courses, um, I just feel like a HUD is almost unnecessary in so many spots where it's like, yeah, okay, we've got like some limited information on this player, but like, I'm just going to use my data read and I know that this prints, so I'm just going to do this um, to where like... I think that's another thing that's happened for me with building out the courses is like the HUD has dropped in value. And not that I actually think that I undervalued the HUD pretty appropriately before where I, I view a HUD as just a thing that collects data for me that so that my brain doesn't have to, but it's, there's no like, uh, there's not any hard extrapolations you can make from a limited data set on ignition specifically of like 40 or 50 hands so it's just like this guy's a fish basically that's what it was <laughs> it was my right. fish radar of like oh this guy's playing like 50 slash 10 they're a fish okay i don't have to keep up with that in my head um but i think these days like with no hud i i am very confident i think in my ability and i hope that you guys um, are more confident in your ability to navigate spots with limited information or even no information I agree. I, I, I use the HUD for exactly that. I label people regs or fishes and um, base my strategies solely on that. And you can pretty much do that with a small data set. You know, you look at bet sizing or three bet sizing and see bet sizings and on appropriate and inappropriate spots and making those easy observations that are easy to me now that wasn't maybe a year ago where I felt that I needed to invest in the extra data so I could have some insight that I never had because I didn't know what I was looking for, I guess. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a crutch in that aspect, but yeah, I mean, I, when I went back to playing live since COVID started, you know, I told you at the time I was actually pretty nervous about it because, you know, I hadn't played live and actually applied myself. And one of the worries was not having a HUD and I was like, well, I mean, everybody limps, it kind of gives away what's going on and you just kind of, you know, feel it out from there and still apply the appropriate concepts when needed. Um, yeah. One of the, the most common questions that gets sent my way via email or whatever is like on an episode of Tactical Tuesday, like Brad, you and John determined that like this player is a fish in very few hands. Like, how did that come about? right? Like, what are you using to label people as fish? And, you know, the first, the first thing that I always say is, well, if you have a lot of visibility on like what good preflop play should look like, first and foremost, the first decision in the tree through like preflop bootcamp or memorizing, understanding your preflop ranges and strategies and how they should work, understanding the concepts of preflop play, it 
it becomes quite easy <laughs> to identify people that are doing things that they just should not be doing. Um, and that's sort of like the first step. And then the next step is like sizings that people use with like raises or check raises or three bets um, or, you know, a C bet on the flop. Say they bet 90% pod in a spot where like that just shouldn't really be a thing. Uh, I think all these things are like indicators that the opponent you're playing against is likely a fish. And for the most part, you know, I'm of the camp of fire first, aim second, just label them a fish. And then if they prove you wrong, change the label, that's okay. But 99% of the time, the label's correct. And you should be using specific fish strategies against those player profiles. I agree. And I feel like there's also a lot of spots, even if you mislabel and you're dealing with a reg and you use your exploited of fish lines that they're still positive EV even against regs. Not all the spots, but I feel like there are still a lot of uh, positive EV spots where they kind of line up together. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to be as plus EV because it's harder to grab EV from regs, but a lot of spots specifically, there are uh, almost an unlimited number of exploits that you can find deep in the game tree even against very very good players i think that that's something that i'm learning and gaining awareness on on a regular basis is like very good players have very big holes in their game and that's just kind of across the board which i guess is reassuring for the future health of online poker that like these <laughs> these guys playing 1k and l playing 2k and l they have very clear holes in their strategy. And that's kind of cool to see because it just means that we got a ways to go before this game is just like straight up solved and there's no more money to be made. I agree. Um, all right. So let's do some lightning round before we, before we call it a day. Uh, if you could gift all poker players, one book to read, what would it be and why? Oh, uh. I should have thought about this question because you always ask it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I've really enjoyed Mike Sexton's book. I feel that it was very down. It's like a history of poker story. Um, he's been around since so younger and met Doyle in his prime. Um, I, I really enjoyed his book, The Biggest not the biggest bluff. What is the name of his book? Um, Life's a Gamble. Cool. I've heard lots of good things about the Mike Sexton book and horribly, horribly have not read it as of yet, but it's, it's on the list of things that I need to get around to along with, you know, solving poker and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, <laughs> um, if you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What would your billboard say? Just enjoy it. Why is that so meaningful to you? Because um, for so many years, I didn't. And my day depended on how I did. So if I won, it was a great day. And if I lost, don't talk to me. And it's, you're playing a game. You know, if you're doing it for a living, you're playing a game for a living. And you should enjoy it. Uh, if that's what you choose to do, just enjoy what you're doing. And whether you're there just for entertainment, you want to be a wreck and just want to have a fun day at the casino, just enjoy it regardless of the outcome. I agree. Thousand percent. 
Couldn't have said it better myself. What's your current next big goal? We're going to move up to 200 and L? Uh, yeah, my, my goal is to be a winning player at 200 and L, and that would enable me to cut way down on the amount of overtime I have to work so I can reinvest time into my family. Um, so might not get there this year, um, but I think I'll definitely be there by the end of next year. I would hope so. I would very, very much hope so. Um, all right, man. It's been great having you on. It's been great hearing more about your story, learning more about you. And would you like to share any parting words with the audience before we shut this sucker down? Uh, if you guys have not looked into Greatness Village, you really should. It's an awesome group of people. Um, everyone's there to support each other. There's no negative talk. And no matter what your skill level is, I think that you have something to gain just by joining and by joining is free. So I really think that if you're on the fence about it, you have nothing to lose. Just go from there. Um, I kind of did that path and it's been nothing but rewarding. Well, I appreciate it. I, I didn't even pay you to say that. <laughs> Haven't paid anybody to say any of the nice things. Um, that they've said about Greatness Village, and I'm very humbled and happy to be helping folks along, being the guide in their poker journey. And it's been, again, like I said, great having you on, and we'll do it again sometime in the future, sir. Best of luck. Take care. You too, Bob. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.